All right, we're starting here on the top of Kufa Medalif, continuing what we were discussing at the end of yesterday's daf, which is the ability of objects to land on water or on items and considered to be stationary and landed, or are they still unsettled and therefore they're not landed? So yesterday we said that if water lands on water, then that is considered a landing because the water belongs with the rest of the water. And if you take water from a water body, that's considered to be an akira. On the other hand, we said if a nut lands in the water, that is not coming to a standstill. It's not reaching a point where it's stationary. Therefore, that's not considered hanakha. The Gemara left is unresolved. The question, if it's a glee that's floating along the water, and then a nut lands in the glee, whether that is considered to be landed or not. Because the nut, as far as the glee is concerned, is landed. The glee itself is floating in the water, so it hasn't reached a point where it's settled. So that's what the Gemara left is a take. Now the Gemara deals with liquids. Shemen al-gabiyayin, oil and wine. So we know always that oil separates from whatever liquid it is with. So now you have this oil that's floating on the top of the wine. Machloket between Rabbi Yochanan ben Nuri v'Rabbanan. It's not. Shemen shetzaf al-gabiyayin. If you have oil that's floating on top of wine, but now God's full yom b'shemen. That's full yom comes into contact with the shemen. Now this is not just anybody who is tamay that comes into contact with the shemen because... If someone who was Tamei came in contact with the Shemen, then the Shemen would become Tamei, and it would be able to pass or convey that Tumah to the Yain. So it would be irrelevant whether the Yain is Tamei or not Tamei. Of course it's Tamei. So here we're speaking about a Tvoyom. Tvoyom was someone who's already gone to the Mikveh, and he's awaiting sunset on that day to become completely Tahor. Tvoyom is already what we call a Sheni Tumah Minatora, and he can only be Posel. Posel means he can convey Tumah to the object that he touches, but that object will not pass the Tumah along. It will ruin the object he touches, but will not pass it on. So here, a Tvul Yom who comes in contact with the Shemen, with the oil, lo pasal el Shemen. According to the Chachamim, he is only posel the Shemen. The Yayin remains totally fine. On the other hand, Rabbi Yochan Menuri Omer, Shnehem Chibur Zelezet. They're considered to be a single liquid. They are considered to be one unit. And therefore, when he touches the oil, it's the equivalent of him touching not only the oil, but the wine. So he has to say that, because again, it's not that he's conveying the Tumah through the Shem into the Yayin, but rather, either you view them as one object, one liquid, and when he touches the Shem, it's like he touched the Yayin directly. Or according to the Chachamim, the liquids remain separate. So when he touches the Shem and the oil, the Yayin remains fine. We see here a machloket between Rabbi Yochum and Nuri and the Chachamim, similar to what we just discussed before, which is, you have wine and oil together, and they're separate. Do we look at, view them as a single entity, or we view them as separate entities? Amar Bor bishuta rabim, ambukasara, rachbashmona. You have a bor, a pit, a cistern in the rishuta rabim, that is ten tfachim deep. It meets the requisite ten tfachim to be a rishuta yachid. And it is shmonat fachim. It is eight fachim wide. So really, in truth, is the size of two rishuyot yachid. You could have a ten fachim by four by four that makes rishuyot yachid. So this bor has enough space to have two rishuyot yachid, two areas that are ten by four. Berach bashmona, and it's eight fachim wide. Vizarakla tocha machatzelat, and he throws this reed divider into it. Chayav. Then he is chayav. Because no matter where the divider lands, there's still a Rishut Yachid that is surrounding it. On the other hand, if he landed this divider dead center, then he is Patur. So we have exactly eight Tvachim here in this boar. Eight Tvachim can divide up into four Tvachim on this side and four Tvachim on that side, and you'll have two Rishiyot Yachid. 
So no matter where the divider lands, there will always be a residual Yerushut Yachid on the other side or around it, and that's why you'll be Chayav if the fence or this divider lands in it. The only exception to the rule is if it lands dead center. If it lands dead center, then if you have exactly eight Tvachim, then what's left on each side is a drop below four Tvachim. What happens if it drops dead center your question is basically, when I put something into a bore, is that considered to be a bore with something in it? Or is that a bore that's no longer a bore now? So that, the Gemara is going to ask in one second that question. But as of right now, you have the divider landing in the middle, and now what I have left is 3.99 on one side, 3.99 on the other side, and I don't have a Rishut Yachid. So it's landing there, ruining both Rishut Yachid at the moment that it lands there. So now, it's simple to him or clear to him that this object ruins the mechitzot. It's not really mechitzot over here. Mechitzot, you know, we think of mechitzot as something being above ground or dividers. But mechitzah here is used in the term of what a Rashut Yachid is. Rashut Yachid has to have walls around it. Has to have, walls can be created either by elevating walls or when you dig into the ground, the walls of the bore become the mechitzot. When it says here, it ruins the mechitzot, it means it ruins the Rashut Yachid. So for him, this reed fence, or this reed divider that lands there, is clearly mevatel the reshut. So Abayi clearly believes that this mechatzel, it ruins the reshut yachid. Kol shukein chulia demevatla mechitza. So certainly, if you dump the dirt into the bore, and it takes it from 10 tvachim up to 9 tvachim, that he would consider that to be no longer a reshut yachid. The question that was posed by Rabbi Yochanan at the end of yesterday's daf, is that if you have it simultaneously with the landing of the dirt or the object, you also ruin the reshut that is there. Rabbi Yochanan, we didn't have an answer to this. Abaye seems to be straightforward to him, that if you have this divider that lands and divides up the reshut, that we ruin the reshut at the moment that it lands. And we don't say that, oh, it landed in reshut yachid, and then it divided it. We say no. And same thing over here, where we have something more significant. He's talking about simply a divider, and that ruins the reshut yachid. We're talking about dirt, that fills the base of the bore, that certainly is going to ruin the Rishut Yachid. That's a bias position. He had a question when we're talking about putting in the dirt to fill in the bore. The fact that he had a question by something significant like dirt filling up the bore, then certainly over here by a simple reed divider, He's not going to say that that ruins the mechitzot. He's uncertain by when you're putting in the actual material that the bore is made out of, and he's not sure if that ruins the mechitzot, then certainly by the divider of the mechitzot, that's not enough to be a destroyer of the reshut that is there. So I'm Rabbi, Rabbi made another statement, which is, Bor b'reshut rabim. You have a cistern, a pit in the reshut rabim. Amuka asara, ten deep. Virachvar ba. And it's four wide. Ten tvachim deep, four wide. Malaya ma'im. It's full of water. V'zarak l'tocha chayav. And he throws something into it, he is chayav. So Ira, this is your question, which is, if you have a cistern or a bore pit that is full of water, what you have there is a pit full of water. You don't have no longer a pit, you have a pit full of water. On the other hand, if it's mleyat peirot, if it's full of fruits, v'zarak l'tocha patur, my daima, maim lo mevat mechitzata. Water does not ruin the fact that there is a bore there, that there is a rishut yachid here. That's normal for what to, for to be there inside the bore, and it's not considered as if there's no longer a bore. It's a bore with water in it. On the other hand, peirot mevatlein If you put fruits in there and you store fruits in there, there is no longer a bore there. There is now something less than you had before, 
And that's, again, because most people, if the fruits are there, are going to leave them there either for long duration, or they're going to be mevatal them. They're going to really leave them there, and they become part and parcel of the boar. And in doing such, they ruin the boar. It's not a boar full of peyrot. It's no longer a boar, according to Abayu. So that's the question that you were posing before. When it falls to the bottom, you have to look at what the item is. And in that context, we decide whether it's a pit or a cistern full of something, or is it no longer a pit or a cistern. Tani and Amiyofi have a brighter that supports that understanding. Someone who throws from the ocean onto the main thoroughfare, or from the main thoroughfare into the ocean. The ocean is a Carmelite. It's a makom that is a sur midrabanan to carry into. Isratia is a public domain, a rishuta rabim. So he throws from the public domain into the yam, into the Carmelite, or from the Carmelite into the rishuta rabim. We have patur of alasur. Mimina Torah, nothing happened. But Midrabanan, we're going to restrict you from doing such. If where he threw it into the ocean, there is a special location, and it's ten deep and four wide, so for whatever reason, where it lands in the ocean has a segregated area, either a segregated area where the ocean overflows into this pit that is ten deep and four wide, or in the base of the ocean in that area, there is a depression or a dugout pit that is ten deep and four wide. Over there, Rabbi Shimon says, you're chayav. The reason you're chayav is because of what Abayi said before. When you have a pit full of water, that's exactly what you have. You have a pit full of water. When you're talking about the ocean as a whole, that's a Carmelite. But if you're talking about a specific location within the ocean that has a pit in it, it has some sort of depression that is ten deep and four wide, just the fact that the water of the ocean is in it is not mevatal. It does not ruin it from being a pit. And it's a pit with ocean water in it, instead of what Abayi described before as a pit with water in it. So that supports Abayi's understanding, this position of Rabbi Shimon. Okay, here, we're going to move on to the next Mishnah. This is a Mishnah that we've quoted a couple of times already, including in yesterday's daf. Hazarek Arba Amot Bakotel. Someone who throws four Amot towards the wall. If it's Lamalami Asarat Fachim, if he throws the object above Tent Fachim, Kizarek Bavir. It's like throwing it in the air. And there you would not be chayav, because we're talking about Rishut Rabim. Rishut Rabim ends at Tent Fachim. So if your action is completely above Tent Fachim, then you're not going to be chayav min Torah for doing anything. On the other hand, if it's lematam yaserat Fachim, if it's below Tent Fachim, zoreg baritz. It's like you threw it along the ground, and the zoreg baritz arba amot chayav. And when you throw four amot, when you're within the requisite area of the Rishut Rabim, meaning below Tent Fachim, then you are chayav. So that would be chayav. So it's a difference between pitching the ball into the wall, and it sticks to the wall, versus bowling the ball towards the wall. If you're throwing it above the tent vachim, and it sticks to the wall above tent vachim, you are patur. If it's below the tent vachim area that you're throwing it, then you are chayav. It's the difference between being in the Rishut Rabim, which is below tent vachim, or being above the Rishut Rabim, which is above tent vachim. And remember, we said before that we only do things that were domed the mishkan, there are things that we find in the Mishkan with regards to Hotza'ah. And above Tent Fachim, we only found passing of objects and the movement of objects. We don't find throwing of objects above the Tent Fachim area. And that's why you're not going to be Chayav. V'halonach. The Gemara asks the question, wait, you threw it at the wall, but when you throw it at the wall, it hasn't settled. If it hasn't settled, then you're lacking one part of the Melach of Hotza'ah. Hotza'ah needs Akira and it needs Anacha. So where is this Anacha along the wall? Rabbi Yochanan... Rabbi Yochanan qualifies the mission, says, talking about a big fat fig that's juicy, and that when it hits the wall, it sticks to the wall. It's a sticky fig. 
And that's how it is now. That's how it stays there. Amr of Yudah, Amr Rav, Amr of Achiyah. Zarak l'malam b'asara, v'alcha v'nacha b'chor koshu. He throws it above ten tefachim, and instead of sticking to the wall like Rabbi Yochanan says, it lands in a little hole over there. When it lands in that little hole, banu l'machloket Rabbi Meir v'rabbanan. We've now reached the machloket between Rabbi Meir and the Rabbanan. This is a Gemara that we saw in the first parak on Tavzayin, on the first parak, and we discussed it then. Rameir and the appear in a couple of places. One of the major areas is in the beginning of Masechet Yoma, as well as in Menachot, with regards to the din of Mezuzah. With regards to the din of Mezuzah, there is a minimum requirement for the size of the doorway, which requires a Mezuzah. The measurements for the Mezuzah are square measurements. It's a height, and it's a width to give you what a normal doorway looks like. What happens if the doorway is there, you have the requisite height of the doorway, but it's actually an archway. The doorway, instead of being squared out, is actually an arch on the top. So the arch diminishes the dimensions that you would need for it to be a petah, a doorway for mezuzah. Here we have a mechalot between the mayor and the chokamim about chokakim l'hashlim. Do we look at it as if you carved it out to finish it out, finish off the door? If you have an archway... The doorway has at least a minimum of three tvachim of uprights, of straight up, and then it begins to curve in towards the top. It meets the requisite height from the base to the center of the arch, but the sides of the arch do not have the requisite height, even though they have the requisite width at the base of the doorway. The chachamim say, patur mi mezuzah. You haven't reached the numbers that you need for a doorway, therefore you're patur. On the other hand, Rabbi Meir says, chokim lashlim. We look at it as if you carved out and squared out the doorway. The archway is decorative, it's practical in order to make it that it's supported by the top, but that's not a diminishment of the doorway itself. And therefore we look as if you carved out the arch and it's a full doorway. That's what we call Chokim Lashlim. So what we're saying here is if the item lands in a Chor Koshu, in this little hole on the wall, that's a Machuk Rameir Lechachamim. The Rameir, Damar Chokim Lashlim. Meir says, you are Chokim Lashlim, Michayev. We are Chayav, because we look at it as if, even though it's a Koshu, and it really hasn't landed, you need an, a space that's chashuv, a 4x4 four four tzvachim to land, we look at it as if you opened up that space and made it into 4x4 four four tzvachim. According to the chachamim, it never really landed. It landed on an area that's not considered to be a real landing. And since it didn't land on something that's considered to be enough, you're missing one of the critical items, critical actions within chotzah, which is hanacha. It hasn't really landed the object. Now, we had the machloket back on davzayin, between Rashi and Tosafot about exactly what's happening here. According to Rashi, there's literally a little hole there. And we look as if the hole is now opened up. We look it up as if it's now bigger than it was before. So the Rashi over here says, We're here in the Rashi says, Arba, which would be Arba Mot, which doesn't really make so much sense. Probably should be Arba'am, which is for Tvachim in order for it to be a significant location. Tzarba'amot, most walls, even without Chokim and Eshelim, would never qualify. You had a hole all the way through the wall. So Rashi just says, if you land in this little koshu hole, we look at it as if it's opened up by four by four. Tzafot, not here, but in the beginning of Sefta, does not like that at all. He says, even Rabbi Meir, who says that you carve out the excess area to get to the squared out door, has minimum standards. He still says that you have to have three Tzfachim that are the requisite width going up before it starts to curve in. You have to have the basic height in the middle. There's certain basic requirements. Before we say Chokim Lashlim, there's some basic requirements that say we have something here that we're going to carve out the residual from. You can't just say like, oh yeah, we have this little hole, let's carve everything out. That's not the way Rabbi Meir views it. 
And therefore, Tosafot actually says that the case here is a case where you basically have a triangle in the wall. The triangle is wide on the Rishut Yachid side. That's the base of the triangle. And it narrows towards the Rishut Rabim side. So it comes to a point at the Rishut Rabim side. So when the object lands on the Rishut Rabim side, it's not landing in something that is significant, that has the requisite 4 by 4 Tvachim. On the other hand, on the Rishut Yachid side, it's wide. It's wide enough that it has 4 Tvachim on that side. That's where they have this machloket about Chukim Lehashlim. Whether we say that it opens up in order to be a full 4x4 four four Tvachim. You have a triangle. When you have the triangle, do we say now that we cut out the extra pieces of the top of the triangle to square it out to 4x4? Four four? And that's where the machloket of Rabbi Meir and the Chachamim is. Tosafot over there also qualifies and says it's only if it's above 10 Tvachim. Above 10 Tvachim we consider it to be Rishut Yachid because below 10 Tvachim is considered to be utilization of the Rishut Rabim. There's a hole in the wall, then the people in the Rishut Rabim are going to use it. And the people on the Shulayachid side are not going to use it. They're not going to use it because they know the people on the public side will use it to store things, to put things in. And therefore, they will not use it at all. So below 10 Tvachim, there's nothing to discuss here because that's not Rishut Yachid. That's not used by the Rishut Yachid. It's not been classified as Rishut Yachid. We're talking about it's above 10 Tvachim. Above 10 Tvachim where there's an opening wide, four Tvachim wide from the Rishut Yachid side where they will use it. And on the Rishut Yachid side, it narrows down to a small area. And there's the question of we say Chukim Lashlim or not to square it out on the Rishut Rabim side to see if it's a significant area where it lands. So Tanya Namiyochi, they have a brighter that supports that understanding. Zarak you throw it above ten Tvachim, and it lands in a little hole over there. Rameir is Mechayev, Vechachamim, Potrim. Exactly what we just said before. That this is the Machlok between Rameir and the Chachamim. And again, noting that it's above ten Tvachim, not below ten Tvachim. Tell a mitlakate asara mitoch arba. This is a little preview of what we're going to see a lot of in Eruvin. But you have here a mound in the Rishut Rabim that gains elevation of ten tfachim within four amot. So that's a certain amount of steepness that you have. It goes up ten tfachim, but only does it over a area, a width or a length of four amot. So that gives you the steepness of the ramp or this tell this mound that is in the Rishut Rabim. Zarak, Menach, Al-Gabav. You throw something at the object and it lands on the top of this pile. Kayav. Then you are culpable. So we know that Rishut Rabim requires 10 Tfachim high, which you have here, but also needs 4 by 4 Tfachim as an area at the top to make it into Rishut Rabim. That you are lacking over here. You do not have a 4 by 4 Tfachim area at the top. It comes to a point at the top. The reason that you're chayav is because the elevation or the gain of elevation on this mound is so steep that people in the Rishut Rabim will not walk up it. It's so inconvenient, it's so difficult to climb it because of the steepness that they would up to walk around it rather than to go up and then down the other side of it. So because of that, it becomes a Rishut Yachid because we classify as if there really is a space of 4x4 four four there, even though it's not a flat area, the elevation or the pointiness of this mound makes it as if you have 4 by 4 Tvachim there. We have a similar Braita that supports this understanding. We have a Mavoy, which is level with the houses that are in there. I mean the courtyard or this road that leads you out to Rashut Rabim. It's level with the houses inside of it. And then has a descent into the Rashut Rabim. To get to Rashut Rabim, you have to descend. Or the area is level with the Rishutarabim, and a semi drone the and then it descends from the Rishutarabim into the Mavoy. So either way, either the Rishutarabim is higher, 
and the mavui is lower, or the other way around, where the mavui is higher and the shudah beam is lower. So to access one to one to the other, you need a ramp or stairs, but you need something that allows you to access from the mavui to the shudah beam. Oto mavui ainot tzarich lo lechi v'lo kora. That mavui does not require a lechi or a kora. Generally, when you have these roads, let's call it a cul-de-sac, it's a road that is a dead end, and you have courtyards that are off of this road. That's what it's known as a mavui. The courtyards are known as chatzerot. Chatzerot, the courtyards are shared areas between the houses that surround the courtyards. The new number of these courtyards then empty or exit into a roadway like a cul-de-sac, an area that has three walls around it with entrance to the courtyards, and the foresight exits to the Rishut Arabim. As far as the Torah is concerned, all these areas are considered to be a Rishut Yachid. Your house, your courtyard, the Mavoy, they're all private domains, Minat Torah. Nevertheless, the Chachamim were gozer, both in the courtyards as well as the Mavoy, that you have to do something in order to make it mutar to carry on Shabbat. The basic reason for why is because we're afraid that a person who sees you carrying, or he carries in the courtyard, or he carries in the Mavoy, will continue to carry into the Rishut Rabim because he'll say, look, there are many people who walk in the courtyard. It's not owned just by me. And yet we're allowed to carry. So how's this different than Rishut Rabim? I'm going to go out to Rishut Rabim and carry. Areas that are of joint ownership or public areas, I'm going to carry out. People will not know to differentiate between courtyards and Mivaot, which are small numbers of people that join together, and Rishut Rabim, a public domain. So because of that, the Chachamim instituted what we called Erev Chatzerot, which is a way to join all the owners of the chatzer to make it all as if there's a singular ownership of the chatzer, and they made what's called shituf mivaot. Again, same thing, it just works different words for it because they're different areas. You're joined together to make the mavoy as if it's one owner of the entire mavoy and it's a private domain. In addition to that, by the mavoy, you also need on the fourth side that exits to the shutarabim, you either need a lefi, and lefi is just a small poem on the side, or a Quran, something that goes across the top. Machloket in the Gemara and Erevin as to why. There are two opinions. One opinion is, it's Mishum It becomes the effective fourth wall to the Mavoy. The equivalent, it makes the fourth wall. It's not a real wall, but it makes the fourth halachic wall there, so that you now have four Mechitzot to make it into Rishut Yachid. The other opinion is Mishum Heker. It's just a way for people to know where the Mavoy ends, and where the Rishut Rabim starts. We need some sort of designation to tell you, stop carrying here, don't go out into the Rishut Rabim. A reminder, something that you're going to see, and say, I'm not going to go past this point. So one of those two reasons you need a lechi or korah. Gemara is saying over here that if you have this mavoy and Rishut Rabim, which are on different levels, and you require a ramp to either get from one to the other, up or down, then that mavoy does not require a lechi or a korah. No matter which way you think. If you think it's mishum mechitza, then you don't need it because the elevation, the going up of the ramp or descending from the ramp, means that there's really four walls there, just like we said over here. The ramp, when it gets that type of elevation in such a small area, then it's considered to be a separate area. It's as if there are walls there for Rishut Yachid. So the same thing over here. If it's Mishum Heker, if it's for there is going to be a distinction of some sort to show you, the ramp itself distinguishes because of the heights of the two areas. When you get to the top of the ramp, it's clear that you're leaving the Mavoy and going to the Rishut Rabim. So because of that, you do not require a Lechi or a Korah in that case. And that supports what Rav Yudah Marav just said, which is that if you have a ramp, then you have a separate reshut. The ramp is like as if there's a wall there. It's the equivalent of making up a reshut yachid in that area. Rabbi Chanina ben Gamliel Mer, tell Abelit Lakeit, Asrami Tocharbav, Zarako Nachagabav, Chayav. Then we have an explicit statement over here from Rabbi Chanina ben Gamliel that supports Rabbi Yudah Marav, which is that if you have a mount that gains 10 tafachim of elevation within four amot, 
And something low, it's on the top of it, you are chayah, because it's classified as a rishuta yachid. Okay, Mishnah. Zarak l'toch dalar amot. He throw within four amot. Vinit galgel chutz l'dalar amot. And it rolls out of the four amot. To get to more than four amot, he is patur. In that case. So even though it ends up reaching beyond the four amot, and you've now carried within four amot within the shuter abim, because of the way that it happened, meaning that it, it landed before the four amot, and then only rolled out afterwards, and we'll see what that means, but landed and rolled out, he is patur. Chutz l'dalar amot. On the other hand, if it lands outside the four amot, meaning you threw a longer distance than four amot, then it rolls back into the dalar amot. Over there he is, chayav. Because originally it made the requisite distance, and then it comes back in. Where it says, v'halonach. In all these cases, it never really landed. How do you know it didn't land? Because it moved afterwards. It didn't. It landed within four amot, and it rolls out. Or, it landed outside and rolled in. In those instances, it never really landed. If it never really landed, how could you make somebody culpable in that case? Then when it comes to a stop or a standstill, it's within the four amot. That's when it ended. So how could you make them culpable for the fact that it bounced on the outside and rolls back in? So, That's only true if it lands on something. So, We have a brighter that supports Rabbi Yochanan's understanding. What does that mean? That shenach al gabi mashu is a rachutz l'daramot. He threw it outside of daramot. V'dachafato aruach, and the wind blew it back in v'chnisato. Apo pishachazra v'otziato. So the wind carries it back into the foremost and then blows it back out again. Patur. In that case, you are patur. Achazdo aruach mashu. If the wind holds it stationary for a moment, even though it now blows back into the foremost, chayav. You are chayav. What you see from this brayta is that if the object comes to a standstill for a short moment, that's enough to make you chayav. So if you throw it up and it can't, the wind catches it and holds it stationary for a moment outside the foremost, you are chayav. Because that's considered to be a hanacha. But then it blows it back in afterwards. That doesn't matter because it came to a standstill for a second. And it blows in, then you are chayav. On the other hand, if you throw it out, the wind blows it in, blows it out, moves it around. Over there, you're going to have not be chayav because the wind itself never stopped it in a place to have it be nacht. It never landed. And by the fact that it's moving it in, out, in and out, has no bearing on you because it never really landed. But it changes direction. Right. Your question is, which bothered me yesterday also, that eventually it has to land and stop. Rashi makes a distinction over here, which is, so Rashi says in the Mishnah, In the Mishnah, what we thought was that it landed on the ground. Then you don't have to tell me about it. The case of the Mishnah is not a case where it landed on the ground, but the wind was moving it around. And what's the problem over here? Problem is that when the wind catches it, the assumption is that it's not going to land. It's not coming down. When the wind takes hold of it, it's going to blow whatever it wants to wherever it wants, and it's no longer considered to be an akira and a hanacha. If you were to move it along the ground, once it hits the ground, that's hanacha already. Once it lands on the ground, that's hanacha. If it rolls out, moves after that, okay, that's fine, but it's still not considered to be in motion the entire time, because it, at some point will come to a stop, and it landed. So that's considered ready to be problematic. On the other hand, when the wind grabs it, the understanding of the Gemara here, or at least the belief of the Gemara here, is that it has to have stopped in order for you to be chayav. If it's always moving, it's as if it'll never land. Even though, yes, you're right, it'll eventually land. Unless the Gemara looks at it as if it's going to wherever the wind wants. Once the wind's got a hold and zoom whatever it wants, you no longer have anachah because it's going to be blown 
to kingdom come. So because of that, it's not considered landing. On the other hand, if the wind holds it stationary in the air, and Rashi knows it has to be within three tefachim of the ground, when it holds it stationary, then that's considered as if it's landed. If it takes off after that, then we're not going to worry about it because you already had a landing of that object. So that's the difference or the qualification that Rabbi Yochanan is making about our Mishnah. And as Tosua points out that the ruach, the wind, when it catches it, makes it as if it landed on something. On a mashu, the equivalent of what Rabbi Yochanan said before, that it landed on something. Amar Rava, Tov According to what we see here, the Rabbanan believe that even if you're within three tefachim of the ground, it must land on something. Just because you're within three tefachim of the ground does not mean you've landed. You need it to land, literally land on something, not just be within three tefachim of the ground. So number one is, when the, that's what we said before, when the ruach, when the wind holds it up, that's considered to be like landing on a machu, because it keeps it stationary for a moment. If it's within three tefachim of the ground, that's equivalent of landing. On the other hand, if you have an object that's moving at high speed, and it goes within three tefachim of the ground, it has not landed yet till it actually lands. The difference will be something that we saw on Sunday's daf, on Sadi Zayid. What happens if you throw from a Rishut Yachid to a Rishut Yachid, there's a Rishut Rabim in the middle, and you throw the ball, or you throw whatever the object is across, under three tefachim, below three tefachim. Back on the Sadi Zayid, Rav Chilkiya said that the Chachamim agreed to Rabbi Kiv in that case, that That is as if the object stopped in the Rishut Rabim and you'd be Chayav. Even the Rabbanan that will argue on Rabbi Akiva and say when you throw the object below 10 Tfachim and above 3 Tfachim that it's as if it didn't stop there. It's one continuum and you're not Chayav. Suppose Rabbi Akiva looks at it as discrete movement and you would be Chayav. They agree to him when it's below 3 Tfachim that it's as if it landed in the Rishut Rabim. That was Rav Kilkia. What you have here is Rav arguing or disagreeing with that. That even with the within three tefachim of the ground, that's not considered as if landed until you actually land. You must land to have landed. You can't just be considered as if landed when you come within three tefachim of the ground. Yatim Reimar, Rekamar Reimar was sitting and said over what Rav said. Amalei Ravina the Reimar. Ravina asked Reimar, Isn't that our Mishnah? Our Mishnah it says about Nitgalgel that it's rolling. He says, or qualifies our Mishnah, and says that the case in the Mishnah is a case where it landed on something, or that it stopped for a moment. I mean, it has to land on something, or stop for a moment. Our Mishnah is talking about wind, so it has to stop for a moment. It has to have a form of Hanukkah. You're talking about rolling or moving around? This is what you said, Ira, you're asking about. When it's Mitgalgel, it's not going to ever come to a standstill. Over here, since in the end it will land, maybe it's considered to be landed even before it hits the ground. That's not the case. So you would have thought, and the distinction drawn here between the cases is, when the wind gets a hold of it, when the wind gets a hold of it, that's this case of Mitgogel, we consider it as if it's never going to land. It's going to be blown around, fly around, wherever it does, we don't consider it as if it eventually will land. That's not the case. So therefore, in that instance, we definitely require it to be Nita cave mashu, to be held stationary, even within three tefakim of the ground for a moment, or to land on something, at least on something, in order to have anacha. I would have thought that when it comes to the case that Rova is describing, where you throw an object, and the object's in the air, and now it's just descending to the ground. It eventually will hit the ground. We know that, because it's descending. It's making its descent, and it will land and come to a stop on the ground. So maybe in that instance, I would say that once it reaches within three tefakim of the ground, that could be, be considered as if landed. It will land, and so now within three tefachim it says if landed. Kamash that Rova says that's not the case. 
That then even when it is descending and it's going to eventually come to a stop or a standstill or land, still it's not considered landed until it lands, not within three tefachim in the ground. So that's what Maremar points out is the difference between our Mishnah and what Rava said. Rava said a Chiddush. He didn't just repeat or tell us the din of the Mishnah. He told us something that we might not have been able to extrapolate from the Mishnah. The Mishnah is not in a case where, not of an eventuality where it'll land. And of course over there they say you need to land on something. But maybe in a case where it was thrown and is going to land, maybe there I would say within three Tzvachim is considered landed, Rava comes to dissuade us of that fact or to dismiss that possibility and say that that is not as if landed. Okay, next Mishnah. Someone who throws within the ocean for Amot is Patur of Alasur. Again, we said before the ocean is a Carmelite. So if you throw for Amot within a Carmelite, you're throwing within a Rishut Dirabanan. So it's a Surmi Dirabanan, but Midoraita is nothing to discuss. We had this again quoted in the first barrack, on the Fed in the first barrack. You have a puddle of water. And the Rishut Dirabim walks through it. Hazarek litocho, someone who throws from the Rishut Rabim into it, Dalar Amot, Chayav. He is considered to be Chayav, it's as if he moved it for Amot in the Rishut Rabim. Vikamahu Rakak Maim. What is considered to be a puddle of water that's still Rishut Rabim? Pachot miasarat Fachim. If its depth is below 10 Tfachim. As long as the depth of the puddle is below 10 Tfachim, it's considered to be part and parcel of the Rishut Rabim. Therefore, if you throw from the Rishut Rabim into this puddle, and you get the requisite for Amot, by throwing it into the puddle, you will be chayav. Now the Mishnah does something here which seems completely repetitive, which is, Rakak Mayim, if you have a puddle of water, Rishut Rabim Alechet Bo, and the Rishut Rabim traverses it, then as a rake bitocho, someone throws in it, Da'adamot Chayav, Foramot is Chayav. So we'll note just one difference, a small difference between the two cases. In the first case it says, as a rake litocho, someone throw into it, it means that you're outside of the puddle and you're throwing it into the puddle. And the case in the latter half is Hazarek Bitocho. You're in the puddle, and you throw within the puddle, you throw that amount. That's the only difference between the two cases. The Gemara is going to view them as the same. And now the Gemara is going to know, want to know why is it that these two cases are repeated in the Mishnah, or why do you need it to be said twice? The Mishnah uses the term Mehalechet Bo, that goes through it. Mehalechet Bo can be read one of two ways. Mehalechet Bo can mean that the Rishut Rabim goes through it. The puddle is found in the Rishut Rabim. That could be the meaning. Or Rishut Rabim Ma'alechet Bo can mean that the people of the Rishut Rabim who walk in the Rishut Rabim traverse it. Ma'alechet Bo, they walk in it. Truth is, it probably means both in this case. Which is that the puddle is found in Rishut Rabim and the public traverses it. And that's why it's still considered to be part of the Rishut Rabim. So now the Gemara says, Amalu Amar Rabban Alarava Bishlama Hiluch Trezimne I understand why you have to say twice about the puddles at the Rishut Rabim the Rabim themselves, the public traverses them, that comes to teach us that that walking, even though it might be difficult, is considered to be walking. So in an instance, had you just mentioned it once, I would have thought, okay, when you walk in there and it's difficult to walk in there, you're chayav. And if you do any other activity and it's difficult, but if you accomplish the activity, that's considered to be as if done. So the mission comes to repeat it twice and say, that we're talking about walking but tashmish if there's utility that's only done difficultly then that is not considered to be utility or usage of the item so the Mishnah comes to tell you once that walking even though it's difficult to traverse the puddle nevertheless since you do walk through it you are chayav and in addition to that it comes to teach you that's only true by walking not by other things 
So that's why the Mishnah repeated it twice, the walking through, me'alechet's boat. That I understand. But, Ella, rakak, rakak, trezimne ilomali. Why did you have to tell me about the puddle twice? The answer of the Gemara is, chad bimotachamav, chad bimotachamim. Once for the summertime, and one is for the wintertime. Vitzricha, you need it. If you only had written one, I would say, That's only in the summertime. People will walk through the puddle in order to cool off. They open up the fire hydrants to have the water squirt out. People are hot. They want to cool themselves off. So even though normally they wouldn't walk through the water, in the summertime they will go through into the water because it's pleasurable. It's nice to walk through the cool water. So therefore, in the wintertime, no, because they're already cold. They're not going to want to go into the cold water when they're cold already. Had you only told me about the wintertime, since they're already dirty, you walk outside, you're already wet, you're already muddy. So to get a little more muddy, a little more wet, what's the big deal? So you definitely would go through it. Where you're dry and you're not muddy, because that's the only place where you have the problem. No, maybe you would not traverse it. So therefore the Mishnah gave us two times, or discussed the puddle two times, to tell you that this is true both in the winter and in the summertime. If the Rishut Rabim goes through it, and the Rabim walks in it, then it's considered to be part of Rishut Rabim, both in the summertime and in the wintertime. And I wouldn't extrapolate one from the other, because the reasons in the winter are different from the reasons in the summer. Had you only told me one, I would assume that one and not the other. That's the first answer of the Gemara. Abaye Amar? Abaye says no. The reason it repeats it twice is because it's true. Sakadat, I mean, I would have thought, that's when it's not then people go around it. So the question is, how long is the puddle that's here? Although Rashi and other Rishonim use the word rachav, width, it seems to be that when they're talking about width, it means the length of the puddle. If you are looking at a puddle that is less than four amot long, over there you'll traverse the puddle because it's too much work to go around it. And you'd rather just walk through it. On the other hand, if the puddle becomes something that's much more extensive, and then to traverse the puddle becomes much more difficult, then you might opt for walking around it rather than walking through it. So it's a question of inconvenience. If it's mildly inconvenient to go through the puddle, then you'd rather take that mild inconvenience than walking around the puddle. On the other hand, if traversing the puddle becomes very difficult, it's a very long puddle, it's a big puddle, and it's more than four amot, you'd say, you know what, instead of just going through the puddle, I may as well just walk around now. It's a matter of inconvenience. And that's what Abayi says. It's repeated twice in the mission. One to tell you that even when it's lower than four amot, it's still considered a part of the Shutra Rabim. And the second one to tell you, even when it's greater than four amot, it's also part of the Shutra Rabim, even though people might opt to walk around it. But since some people still walk through it, it is classified as part of the Shutra Rabim. And so Abayi says it's repeated twice in the Mishnah. Ravashi Amar, it's strich. We need it read in twice. That's only a case when it's four. If it's not four, the people jump over it, they skip over it, they step over it. Now, there's a problem here with the girsa. The girsa says dalit first. Whenever the Mugara says dalit, it's usually difficult to know what it means. It means four, but we don't know if it means four amot or four tfachim. Generally, the Mugara uses the, our mission uses dalit when it's talking about amot. But it's not a definitive answer. On the other hand, if the Gemara actually spells the word out, then we know there's a difference between Arba, which is a female, and Arba'a, which is male. If it's Arba, the female, that's Amot, because Amot are a female noun, so there would be Arba Amot. On the other hand, if it's Arba'a, the male form, then it would be Arba'a Tfachim, because Tfachim are the male formulation. So because of that, when the Gemara says Arba'a over here, that would mean for 
Tfachim. So it says over here, the issue seems to be according to Ravashi, the distance of four Tfachim, and not with regards to four Amot. The problem is that Rashi, in his, says, He says that it's four Amot. There's some question as to the Girsa of four Tfachim and four Amot. The truth is that four Tfachim makes a lot more sense here than four Amot. We're talking about skipping over the puddle or jumping over the puddle. Four Tfachim is reasonable to step over or to skip over. Four Amot is not a reasonable distance to step over or skip over the puddle. Because you'd have to say either he's a good long jumper, or he can jump and take one step in the puddle and then make it to the other side. Something along those lines. But what we have here, what the Ravashi is suggesting is, you're right, I would have thought, had you only written one instance in the Mishnah, I would have thought that's a case when it is four. Now, does that mean four Tfachim or four Amot? Now, no matter what you have in the second part of the Girsa, this could be true. I would have thought it's only when it's four Amot, where it's a long area, and people don't generally jump over it. So whether that means four Amot or four Tfachim, it's not clear, but it means a greater distance that people can't jump over or step over. In a case when it's less than four tfachim, we're going to actually less than four amot, then mitzvah psile, people step over it. Since they step over it, it will not be considered part of the Rishut Rabim, because people do not traverse it. They avoid it. By avoiding it, they basically show that it's not part of the Rishut Rabim. So I would have thought over there, it's not considered part of the Rishut Rabim. And that uh, is what the Mishnah comes to say no. It repeats it twice. They say, even when it's a small area that you would be able to jump over skip over, step over, it's still considered to be part of the Rishut Rabim, if people can walk through it, if it's not the tenth Fahim deep. Raza Ravashi the Tamei, Ravashi's Lashita To, it's like what he said in other places, Dhamma Ravashi, Haiman the Zarik, someone who throws something, Venach Agoda the Gamla, and it lands on the hump of the camel, Mechayev, there he is, Chayav Sharei Rabim Bukim Bal, because the public goes through it. So obviously he's not talking about really the hump of a camel. What he's talking about here, as Rashi describes, is a bridge. He's talking about a bridge that has planks on the bridge. So you walk over the planks to cross the bridge. One of those planks is loose or out of place. It's sticking up. It's not on level with the other planks. It's tilted, upright, broken, whatever it is. And that's what it means, go to the gamla. Talking about the bridge or the hump of the camel. It's something that's not along the flat of the bridge. So most people, when they cross the bridge, what will they do? They'll walk over the bridge, and when they get to this plank, they will step over it. They will not step on that plank, they'll avoid that plank. Either because it's weak and it's going to fall in, it's inconvenient, it's out of place, so they just step over that plank and move to the next plank. Nevertheless, Ravashi says that if you throw something that lands on that plank, that plank is considered to be part of the Rishut Rabin. But we know that nobody walks on it. Everybody avoids that plank. Nevertheless, what does Ravashi say? Rabin Bokimbo. People pass it. I mean that, you're right, they don't utilize that plank itself, but they still walk past it. They walk through that area. And since they traverse that area, that's considered to be a Rishut Rabim. Similar to what Ravashi is saying here by the puddle. Even though people would step over the puddle and avoid the puddle, it's still classified as Rishut Rabim. Because people walk that way. That's the direction that they walk, they continue to walk. Yes, they avoid the puddle, but they still walk over the puddle. And walking over the puddle is equivalent of walking in the puddle or through the puddle, and that's considered to be Rishut Rabim. And that's Ravashi is consistent in these two locations. That even though you don't step in it, you don't walk directly on it, it's still part of the Rishut Rabim. Right, but he says the Mishnah repeats it twice, the second time to teach you, even when it's less than four Tachim, and you can't wade wait through it, and you step over it, that's your Chayav. Right. Okay, next Mishnah. Someone throws from the ocean to the shore. Or from the shoreline to the ocean. The assumption here being the Yavashah, the shore is a public domain, and the Yam being a Carmelite, as we've seen many times. 
Or, minayam lesfina. The sfina is probably a rishuti yafid. So he throws in the ocean into the boat. Or minasfina yam From the boat into the yam. Or you throw from one boat to the other, patur. In all these cases, you're patur. Because you're only dealing with Rishiyot de Rabbanan. In all these cases, you're dealing with a Carmelit on one side. Or by the two boats, you're dealing with a Rishut Yachid to Rishut Yachid with a Carmelit in between. So the worst, you're dealing with a Rishut de Rabbanan. So in all these cases, you're patur, aval, asur. Sfinot, shurot, zubazu. If you have boats that are tied up together, you can carry from one to the other. They're considered to be one big Rishut Yachid. If you make an Eruv, if they're owned by two people, or if it's owned by one person, then they are considered to be a Rishut Yachid and carry from one to the other. If the boats are adjacent, but they are not tied together, even though they're adjacent, you can't go from one to the other, because the assumption is that they will float apart. They'll move apart, they will separate, and because of that, what you're basically doing is carrying from Rishud Yachid to Shukar Yachid, past or through the Carmelite, which is a problem, and a carrier, me, de Rabbanan. Itmar, Sfina, and we're talking about a boat. Vunamar, Motzime Menuziz, Koshu, you put a little extension off the boat, Umimalei, and then you can draw water. The assumption here being that we're dealing with a decent sized boat, a plank, that's the equivalent of what a plank is. What happens is you have to draw, we want to draw water out of the river that the boat is in. So now the river has a classification of a Carmelite. The boat is a Rishuddha Yachid. So how do I draw water from a Carmelite and bring it into the Rishuddha Yachid? So the suggestion of Ravuna is that I extend some plank out, something that's a very small area out, which is considered to be a Makom tour. A Makom tour, we know from the Gemara's earlier, if you draw water from a Carmelite, bring it into a Makom tour, then from a Makom tour into a Shudi Yachid, that is permissible. Even though the Gemara in the first paragraph said, if you take something from a Shudi Rabim, put it in a Makom tour, and then from a Makom tour to a Shudi Rabim, that is impermissible. Even though Minat Torah, that's totally fine, because you took from a Shudi Rabim to a Makom tour, which is fine Minat Torah, and you took from a Makom tour to a Shudi Yachid, it's also fine Minat Torah. What we're afraid of is if we allow people to do that, they won't stop. They won't stop in the Makom Tor, and then they end up being Chayah Midoraita. Over here, since one of the sides is a, it's a Rishut Midrabanan, in that case, we don't worry about it. So if he takes from the Carmelite onto this Makom Tor, and then from Makom Tor into the boat, that's going from a Carmelite to Rishut Yachid. At worst, if he takes it directly, he's only in violation of an Isu Dirabanan. So therefore, we allow him to take it onto the Makom Tor, and then take it in. That's Ravuna's solution, that's how he draws water, from outside the boat, into the boat. On the other hand, Rav Chista, V'Rabba Baruna, Makom Arba'a Umele He has to actually make a squared out area that is four by four Tvachim. He frames out a square that is four by four Tvachim, and then he puts it over the water. This again, we're going to bump into in Erevin. In Erevin, there was a kula, that if you had a balcony, or areas that are sticking over the water, and you want to draw water from the river and bring it inside, if you have a frame that is four by four tzvachim wide, sitting over the water, that makes it equivalent to that the water below it is like Rishut Yachid. And there you can draw the water up through this frame and then into the boat. So it's a kula that the Chalami made by water because of the necessity of water on Shabbat and they needed water. So what they did was they made this dispensation that if you have a frame of four by four tzvachim over the water, that you can draw from water, even though water generally is a Carmelite. It applies only to the Rabbanan. They made that area into a Shudachid. That's the Chachamim's dispensation. You have to use that same methodology here by the boat. You have to stick a frame that's four by four off the edge of the boat and draw through that frame to bring it into the boat. And you fill it up because Kasavar, Carmelite, Me'ara Mashchinan. And Carmelite is counted from the ground. Vavira Makom Tur. And above 10 Tvachim, it's considered to be a Makom Tur.
And he shouldn't even need this protrusion or this thing sticking out of the boat. He needs it there so that it is a hecker. It's distinguished and that he knows that he's not doing something that's normally allowed to take from a Carmelite into the boat. So basically, according to this opinion, he says a Carmelite is ten fachim high like a Rishut Rabim. When they patterned the Carmelite, they patterned it after Rishut Rabim. Just like Rishut Rabim only goes up ten fachim, so too a Carmelite only goes up ten fachim. But where is the bottom of the Carmelite? Where's the base of the Carmelite from which you count? He suggests, Ravuna suggests, that's from the base of the ocean, from the floor of the ocean, the floor of the river. So once you do that, ten tfachim up from there, you're still underwater. So when you go to draw the water, you're drawing from above ten tfachim. You're drawing from a makom tour. If you're drawing from a makom tour, you should be able to draw straight from the water into the boat. Why do you have this little extension going out of the boat? That answer is just a hecker. So you know the reason you're allowed to do this is because you're drawing from a Makom tour into the boat. That's Ravuna's opinion. He has to make this frame and draw it. We count or we measure the tenth Fachim of the Carmelite from the top of the water. The water is not part of the tenth Fachim. The tenth Fachim start from the top of the water. Why? Because Mayar is Michata. The water is basically like land. It's a big piece of land. It's like being on the ground, and it just happens to be that it's water, but it looks, it's basically equivalent of land. Therefore, anything from the ground is considered to be a Carmelite. And it tends to him up from there. So there, according to them, you're drawing from a Carmelite, not from a Makom tour. Since you're drawing from a Carmelite, you have to use the dinner of the Chachamim to put out this frame of four by four Tzvachim. If you don't put out this frame, it's the equivalent of carrying from a Carmelite into a Shadiyachid, which we don't have a dispensation for. According to Rabbi Ravu and Ravuna, say that you just have to put this extension on the boat. What happens if you're in a shallow area of the water? If you're a shallow area of the water, then the tenth of do not end before the top of the water. That means you're drawing from something that is still classified as a Carmelite. If you have shallow water, even if you count from the base of the river or the base of the ocean, the ten Fachim exceed the water. And that means the water you're drawing is from a Carmelite. We have a Misora. A boat. This is what we're doing. A boat. A boat means something significant. It will not go in an area that's less than ten Fachim because then it will run ashore. It will be grounded or beached. And therefore nobody will take a boat into water that is less than ten Fachim deep. A boat is not flat. A boat at the base of the boat is deep. But as it reaches up to the front of the boat and the back of the boat, the boat ascends. So you're right. Maybe the center of the boat they won't take into a place that's less than Tavachim. But the front of the boat they may take into an area that is less than Tavachim. And if he's drawing from the front of the boat, he'll be drawing for him a Carmelite. People will not take the boat there. It's too risky to take that part of the boat over there because it might get washed ashore, or washed over to that area. Nobody's going to take it to that shallow water. How do they know? They go with sticks. The people in the front of the boat, they stick out long sticks that feel how deep the ground is, and they will avoid taking the boat to the shallow areas. So therefore, people will never end up in an area that's less than 10 tefachim high in the water. He makes a 4 by 4 frame, and then he fills the water in. How does he dispose of his wastewater? According to the other opinion, you just need Aziz Kolshul. You put Aziz out on this side, Aziz out on that side, you draw from one side, you dump your garbage on the other side. Over here, if you dump your garbage to the same frame that you're drawing the water from, that's not so pleasant. 
you throw it back out to the 4 by 4 frame, then basically he's going to be drawing his water from the same place he dumped his garbage. Truthfully, in their day, that ended up being a huge problem. That's what happened in the canals in Venice and all these places. People would open up their window, dump their garbage into the water. Then somebody else downriver would be drawing water, then be end up picking it up. And that's why people were getting sick. They were using the waterways as sewage and for drawing water from. But over here, it's really, he's dropping it for the exact same hole that he's dropping. He's going to bring it back in. So he wouldn't want to do that. Where it says, He dumps it on the wall of the boat. He doesn't dump it directly into the water, into the river or the ocean. He dumps it on the wall of the boat. And then it runs from the wall of the boat down into the river or into the ocean. Where it says, Fine. It didn't go directly there, but it's your action that makes it drop into the water below. That's what I said before. The Chachamim were not gozer, certain things, when it was a Rishut Rabbanan. So here it's a Carmelite. And the reason the water is getting there is not because you threw it directly there. It's not because you put it there directly. It's because you poured it on the side of the boat. Now it's dripping down to the Carmelite. In a Rishut Rabbim, that would be problematic because your action is what caused it to happen. But in a Carmelite, in a Rishut Rabbanan, there we're not going to hold you culpable for it because we're dealing with a Rishut Rabbanan. Alright, technically you could build another square. The Gemara thought that that was too much. That was too inconvenient because it's a big deal to make these frames and hang them off the boat. So they thought they would only have one of them. Umarat Temra, and how can I prove that to you? The Tanya. Sfina aimed tautalin lomi tochaliyam, falomina yam tocha. May not carry from it into the ocean or from the ocean into it. Rabbi Yehuda Omer, amukasara, ve'en gvoasara, metautalin metochaliyam. Avalomina yam tocha. If it is ten tvachim high, then you can take from it to the ocean, but not from the ocean into it. It says, Maishnam in a yam tocha, the low. How come you can't take from the ocean into it? Because you're taking from a Kamali into a Shudiyachid. So what? If you take out of it into the Yam, you're just doing the reverse. So why is that permissible? The reason or the answer is that he, on the way out, he's not putting it directly out. He's pouring it on the side or the wall of the boat and then it's dripping into the water. That's a distinction in this statement for Rabbi Huda between pouring it out of the boat and bringing it into the boat. Bringing it into the boat you can't do. But that's Karmali to Shudiyachid. Shudiyachid to the Karmali allowed to do not directly, but if you pour it on the side of the boat and it drips down, then that's permissible because we are not gozer for koach in a Karmalit. Now Rashi notes over here that the reason that he says it gva asara, that it's ten tefachim high, is because it's only ten tefachim high from the inside. From the base of the boat to the top of the walls of the boat, it's ten tefachim, so it's a Rishud Yachid. From the outside, the boat is submerged. And so when on the outside it's submerged, you don't have ten tefachim from the water to the walls of the boat. So that's why Rabbi Yud is describing it based on the internal part of the boat, because that's what creates the Rishud Yachid, as opposed to when you're looking from the outside, it looks like the boat is submerged and you don't have the Requisite ten tefachim. And Rashi also notes here that if the boat was not classified as a Rishut Yachid, but rather as a Karmali, then it would be permissible to bring the water in even without stopping or pouring it out without stopping. And that is because the boat would then be classified as a Karmalite and the water would be classified as a Karmalite. And you're moving the water from the outside into the boat or from the boat to the water outside and you have to take the water above ten tefachim in order to do that, either to draw it in or to pour it out. And when you raise it above ten vachim, you're going through a makom tour. And as we mentioned before, when it comes to Rishiyot de Rabbanan, over there they were not gozer when you had from a Carmelite to a Carmelite. Derech, a makom tour, the Rabbanan would not gozer. They only gozer when it involved a Rishut de Oraita. Like we saw before with the drawing of the water, when there's a Rishut de Yachid, then we require either a Heker or we require the 
frame of Arbal, Arbar Tepachim, that when you involve two Rishiyot to Rabbanan, and then you move to a Makom Ptur, over there we say it would be Mutar Gamri. And that's why Rabbi Yehud over here is Makpid, that the boat itself classified as a Rishut Okay, we're going to step over here.